0: Welcome, this is Sheila Murthy, president and founder of the Murthy Law Firm, and I have with me a fantastic panel with Aaron Finkelstein, the managing attorney of the law firm, and Adonika Wada from California, who is our expert on this topic regarding export controls. Today's topic is a continuation of the two-part series that we're doing on export issues, on the deemed export license issue, and I'm going to invite Adonica to just give a brief one-minute or two-minute overview of what we discussed in our last 40-minute teleconference for employers. Adonica,
1: Thank you. Uh, I'd like to say good afternoon and welcome everyone to uh, the Mercy Law Firm's second webinar addressing the new revisions to the Form I-129, which uh, involves the deemed export rule. Last month, we learned why... When companies, like consulting companies or, or, you know, companies involved with immigration are not in the business of exporting or importing, why it's now required to understand the deemed export rule. Uh, During our last month's uh, webinar, we learned and we understood now who is considered a foreign national under the deemed export rule and what types of releases of technology are considered a deemed export. Today, we're going to expand upon the Dean's Export Rule and how it can impact
0: you and your business. Fantastic. Okay. So, I mean, I guess the big issue for you, uh, each of us, in today's teleconference call, is primarily H-1B employers. And remember, we keep using the word H-1B, but it's not just H-1B. It's H-1B, it's H-1B1 Australian, Singapore and Chile, uh, it's L1s, and it's O1. So it's only these four categories, H1B, H1B1, O1, and L1, employers that must complete part six of the new form, which became effective from February 20th, 2011. And it doesn't matter what kind of business you are in. You may say, well, I'm only a school, doesn't matter. I'm only a donut shop, doesn't matter. Ultimately, it's the issue where you are gonna to have to check off saying, yes, we've looked at this, regulation i'm either comply i've either read i've read the itar and the ear and the itar and the ear as you know are the export administration regulation which is the ear and the itar is the international traffic in arms regulation that i've looked at them both and i'm not subject to it or yes i am subject to it and i have obtained the required license in order to proceed with this filing that's the crux of the issue We've had people say, but I'm clearly not, you know, I'm a high school, I'm a secondary, it doesn't matter, you're supposed to. Do you have to read the regulations? Again, that's between you and your council, what level you want to get into, but every single H1B, H1B1, L1 and O1 employer is going to be involved with this. So getting to technology companies, because I think that's a big issue, because that's where you start tra- traversing the gray areas, what kinds of technology or technical data are generally not subject to the EAR and the ITAR? That's the question, the question that's posed to us all the time and regularly. Generally, technology or information that is publicly available or in the, or public domain technology or information which could be considered as fundamental research is not subject to the AR and ITAR. So if your technology or technical data falls within one of these categories, most likely your company would not be subject to the license. So what's the definition of publicly available or public domain. Publicly available information is information that is generally accessible to the general public in any form and therefore not subject to the EAR. Publicly available technology. So the first part was publicly available information. Now we're talking publicly available technology or technical data is that which is already published or will be published arising during or as a result of fundamental research. So you may ask, what's fundamental research? Well, fundamental research is ordinarily published and shared broadly within the scientific community. Basically, if the general public already has access to this information, or they will have access to the information due to the placing of the information, the technology, or the technical data in the public domain, and that is in the normal course of business for such information software technology, then it is considered to be publicly available. So we thought it would be very helpful to go over some examples for you. Software in machine-readable code. If the code is already publicly available, then the software is not subject to the EAR. However, if it's not then it will be subject to the EAR, and then you as the employer, as the H-1B employer, will require a license unless there is a specific exception that applies in your case. So the question often asked is, what about IT IT consulting companies, consultants, who may develop or modify programs using publicly available programming language, such as C++ and Java, and then they create software that is customized for the clients? So an IT consultant using publicly available programming language to modify software may have the opportunity to view the source code. Remember, if you can view the source code, you're getting into now the slippery slope. This could potentially be a deemed export, and a license could be required. If the software is controlled, then a license is absolutely required in order for the consultant to be able to customize the software. Also, if there is a creation of new software, then that must be kept in mind. A license may very well be required for the software that is being created, even if the programming language and the software being modified are not considered controlled. Hence, it is important to understand the product and the licensing requirements. So Adonica, I know I've gone over all this, but I guess the question is, once the employer determines that the technology is not publicly available, what is the next stage to find out if the technology is subject to a license?
1: That's a great question. Um, You know, when you find or learn that your technology or your technical data is not publicly available, you want to first review the, the list of controlled technologies. This means that you need to examine the commerce control list, which is found in the Export Administration Regulations, and you also need to examine the United States Munitions List, or USML, which is with the International Traffic and Arms Regulations. But in those two lists, you will be able to see if your technology is controlled by either and whether an exception applies to any of the licensing requirements. Now. If you are unsure as to which regulations apply to your technology, you may need to consider or you should consider requesting an advisory opinion from the BIS or a commodity jurisdiction determination through um, a department of the, uh, a division of the State Department called the Directorate of Defense Trade Controls or DDTC. Now, an advisory opinion is essentially a request that you submit to the BIS seeking guidance regarding the interpretation of the EAR. Advisory opinions um, uh, have been used uh, frequently to address issues such as uh, the classification of your product, the ECCN classification, uh, whether there are license exceptions available, and, and, and they also address... Uh, the involvement of your foreign nationals. Now, it is important to note that uh, late last year in August, uh, BIS issued an interim final rule stating that advisory opinions could not and should not be used to either shield against enforcement proceedings from the State Department or should could not and should not be used to avoid getting a State Department license.
0: Okay, so what's the purpose? Then why should an employer waste their time, money, and resources, even getting an advisory opinion at Onica? Well, and it's not really a waste of
1: time. It is important because they are giving you their interpretation of the EAR. What is critical to understand is that advisory opinions uh, could, are only issued and have jurisdiction by the BIS. The State Department is a completely different animal with their own regulations, which uh, they regulate the ITAR regulation. Mm-hmm. So that's what's important to to keep in mind. Now when you, um, again, in in looking at these issues and you're unsure, the other um, uh, guidance you might want to obtain is through the commodity jurisdiction determination, Mm -hmm. which basically requests uh, a determination as to whether your item or service is covered by that munitions list, that USML. Mm -hmm. and and therefore subject to export controls, again administered by the State Department. Now, this office at DDTC, the uh, Director of Defense Trade Controls, will review the item and will make an official determination. Mm -hmm. Now, these commodity jurisdiction uh, determination requests are generally issued or submitted by uh, a manufacturer because they're the ones that have that technical uh, proprietary information that would be needed to um,
0: submit. Okay. Okay. So, so this is really helpful. Um, it's a little bit seems a lot to do, especially if I'm an H one B employer. I don't quite understand it. I'm dealing with it, and now I'm being asked to do all of this. I'm obviously at each stage. We've been suggesting that the employers maybe work with or contact the appropriate person. Like yourself, that focuses in this area exclusively, dealing with export control issues, to work because at some point you might pull your hair out and say, "You know what? This is beyond my scope." Right. It is very.
1: It's a very technical area, and it. You know, you're dealing with another governmental agency, and as you, you know, before you make uh, submissions to any governmental agency, you want to know what it is you're submitting, what you're doing. Uh, so that, you know, you you have an understanding of what you, of what's going on, and you don't want to appear to any governmental agency as not having uh, controls
0: or policies or procedures. Exactly, exactly. And there's one important point that I did want to make, which is an H-1B employer or petitioner is not allowed to place the petition beneficiary if you have gotten H-1B Uh, approval already or you filed it and you're eligible to have that person potentially in an unpaid and inactive status until the relevant export license is obtained because such a practice could be deemed as unlawful benching and could expose you as the H-1B employer to a back wage assessment and other Department of Labor penalties. So that's a pretty serious, scary stuff uh, that uh, you as an employer might need to consider here Uh, when you're going through this process Uh, so Aaron let's get come to you now if a license is in fact required what is the process and how long does it take in order for the employer to go through this
2: well thank you Shua. assuming that you've gone through and you've determined that a license is needed you file an application for the license to the agency controlling that particular item or technology as we've already discussed, the Bureau of Industry and Security, the BIS, controls items and technology subject to the EAR, the Export Administration Regulations, and the Defense Directorate of Trade Controls, the DDTC, controls items subject to the ITER, to the International Traffic and Arms Regulation. You can make the application by writing, uh, by written application for a license. But this can really take some time. Sometimes it can take 60 to 90 days or more, would not be unusual. However, both organizations have Internet-based licensing programs that are utilized to significantly reduce the time it takes to get a license. In order to get a license, a person or entity must first register with the agency and then apply following the license instructions on the web-based applications.
0: Wow.
1: Okay that's a good point that uh, Aaron raises, um, that it is a two-step process with these agencies that first you must register with the agency and then you can apply.
0: Wow. Okay. Um... And that 's assuming that the license is needed, which itself to to figure that out itself requires almost an expert to do it, which if I was an h one b employer right now with hundreds and hundreds of consultants, I would be sort of ready to pull out what little hair I might have had left uh, in trying to deal with this whole issue it 's crazy and and to add fuel to the fire, and we certainly don 't want to scare anybody you know at this point it 's really unclear. If an employer, if an H-1B employer makes a mistake on this section of the form and you check off the Part 6 on the Form I-129, it is really unclear how aggressively the USCIS will investigate and prosecute errors in the completion of the I-Form 129 for H-1Bs, H-1B-1s, O-1s, and Ls. Um, A knowing false statement or concealment of a material fact on the Form I-129 could result in the imposition of civil and criminal penalties, as we all know as well as possible denial of the non-immigrant petition. But the errors that generally do not meet the knowing standard potentially should not be subject to these really, really tough penalties.
1: Right, and I think, you know, you make a a great point there, Sheila, in that we don't want to, you know, uh, say the sky is falling, but, um, you know, as you advise your clients, we do the same in that... um, what everyone needs to consider, especially if you have hundreds of consultants or, you know, you're doing this on a frequent basis, is ensuring that you have processes
0: and procedures. Inside. Absolutely. And and from the employer's point of view, and I think Aaron can discuss a little bit, what are the kinds of penalties for violating the EAR or the ITAR, but really if if the employer, in the event of an export violation, any statement made under oath in Part 6 of Form I-129 and as we explained before, either that a license is not required or that the employer, H-1B employer, will prevent the unauthorized access to the control technology by the employee, the H-1B employee, could become evidence in an export enforcement action by the BIS or DTTC or a criminal prosecution by the Justice Department. And what other kinds of criminal prosecution, the kinds of horrific things that are they trying to threaten the employers with?
2: Well, you know, there are both civil and criminal penalties, and I always look at this in three steps. First, people take away my privileges, then they take away my money, and then they take away my freedom. So if you look at the penalties from that perspective, the first thing that people can face for these types of violations or companies can face is the revocation of export privileges and the debarment from U.S. government contracts. Then in addition to that, there are civil penalties that are up to – $500,000 500000 or half a million dollars per violation, and criminal penalties that are up to $1 million per violation and 20 years in prison. So the penalties actually, and these are for each violation, so the penalties for these violations and for what's going on is actually quite steep.
0: Wow. Okay, so I know the question keeps being asked, okay, so what does it mean in terms of completing the Form I-129? I thought i'd try to go over it in a couple of minutes before i have adonica come back and discuss other more complex issues dealing with how can a petitioner use the list to determine the technology if it is subject to a license and if there are exceptions to the license requirement because you as h1b employers are primarily i guess concerned about answering the questions on form i129 timing if at the time of filing the petitioner's technology was not subject so you were not subject to the license but you later gained the technology that is subject to the license, do you now as the H-1B employer have to file an amended H-1B petition? Well, the answer, believe it or not, like with everything else, a lot of issues is that it's not clear. We don't have a clear yes and no in this. The BIS has indicated that an amendment probably would not be required. There is no such indication from the U.S. Department of State. The USCIS has not issued any clarification or guidance on these issues. Certainly, from a safety point of view, it's always safer to file an H-1B amendment rather than find out after the fact that an amendment could have or should have been filed all along. I know, Aaron, when we were discussing it, we were talking about the whole issue.
2: Well, there is something in the regulation that talks about a material change requiring an amendment. This is clearly from an immigration or an H-1B perspective. So if you're looking at the job duties that the individual is performing, that the foreign national is performing, if you're looking at the location that the foreign national is performing, if you're looking at the employer not being changed. So there's an argument to say, well, is the fact that a deemed export license is currently required and wasn't previously required, but nothing else for the foreign national has changed, do you really need to do an amendment? And I would say there's an argument to say that such an amendment would not be required. However, I agree with you, Sheila. the safest thing to do is always, when in doubt, file the petition just in case.
0: Yeah, and I think Adonica was saying the same thing, that it's not just a technical, even though they claim that this is in order to go, sort of go through a process and a system, it's not just superficial, it's a very big substantive issue, as we've learned from the last two sessions that we've been working on this issue.
1: Right, and if you think about it, too, you know, these agencies are regulating different conduct. So the immigration has a different focus where they may not, you know, consider it necessary to amend, but the other agencies that do control the deemed-at-sport regulations do find it as, I guess, material.
0: Exactly, exactly. The next sub-issue we want to discuss was working at a third-party client location, So if you as the H-1B employer sends your foreign national H-1B employee to a third-party client site where the foreign national may have access to controlled technology, are you or is the third-party client site or both of you responsible for obtaining the required export control license? Well, the actual, the real answer is that the exporter is responsible for obtaining the license as that entity is considered the U.S. principal party in interest, or USPPI. In this case, the foreign national is working at a third party client site. It is that third party client site that potentially has the control technology. Therefore, the third party client would be responsible for any license requirements under the regulations. It is their technology that must be controlled. Another issue that's sort of related that's often asked is would sending an IT consultant out to a client site where this client, where the employee may have access to certain technology, constitute providing access to the H one B employee. Well, very likely that it could be considered as providing access because you're the H one employer, you've now made this allowed this H one employee to go to a third party client site where this third party client is providing access to this foreign national to use certain technology that could or should be subject to a export license. So sending the foreign national to the third party client site where it is known that the foreign national is likely to have access to controlled information could be considered as providing access by the USCIS, as I just explained, but the Form I-129 instructions do not address or define what's providing access. The employer, the H-1B employer, is not directly providing access to the foreign national and is not the exporter or the US PPI. However, under the EAR, all parties to any export transaction are ultimately responsible for ensuring compliance with export laws. It is important to understand the nature of the employment of the beneficiary, fully understand the nature of the work that the third-party client requires from your H-1B employee, and to inform the third-party client of their responsibilities under the EAR and ITAR. So as a consulting company or a consulting firm, you probably would need to include in the contract a statement that the third-party client acknowledges their responsibility as the exporter and will be responsible for obtaining the required license if the foreign national will be subject to or will be exposed to controlled technologies. However, it is important to note that you cannot contract away your obligations under the EAR or ITAR, at the minimum, the consulting company's responsibility would be to notify the client, the end client, that the contractor is a foreign national so that the client could make or decide if it needs to go into the entire license determination issue. So that's a, that's a substantial amount of responsibility for you all as H-1B employers. So Adonica, how would the H-1B employer use the list that we've talked about to determine if their technology or technical data is subject to a license. It's sort of like chicken or egg here. We're going in circles because we don't want to be subject, but then we keep coming back to this. So how can they use the list to determine if their technology?
1: Right, and it's a little different when we're talking about deemed export because we're generally talking about companies that aren't uh, necessarily involved in the traditional export that we consider where a physical product is moving to a physical country what we're looking at is this this transfer of technology or technical data. And essentially, whether an export license is required will depend on two factors. If you want to distill it down, it's two factors. The nature of the workplace technology that will be transferred to the foreign national, and second, the foreign national's home country for export control purposes. Mm -hmm. Now, in our last month, Um, webinar, we did go over what is the foreign nationals home country, and what we're really looking at now is this workplace, what is the nature of the workplace technology. When you are determining if your technology or technical data is subject to a license, as a petitioner, you want to look at what your potential foreign national employee is expected to do. You want to understand their duties. You want to understand their access to technology and the technical data. Will their work involve research? Are there publication restriction or other restrictions to certain foreign nationals? Will that work be associated with military systems or weapons or space related technologies or high performance computers? Will the employee have access to third party proprietary information and materials? These are just some of the questions that must be examined um, when we're looking at kind of a doing a technology assessment. Wow. Um, Right, and in terms of examining the scope of the duties
0: and the responsibilities. Wow. I mean it sounds like a lot for an H one B employer that's doing whatever technology or if I'm an insurance company, if I'm a healthcare insurance healthcare provider, if I'm a hospital, to go through this analysis almost it's almost like we have to hire you, Adonica, to guide us <laughs> through this whole I mean it's incredibly scary. If I was the H one B employer doing all this, I would be like, Oh my God. So what are some of the practical steps that we can suggest that you would be able to suggest to the H one B employer to take to try to sort of shortcut this whole convoluted, complex, really scary, scary process. Right. It's and it is.
1: It does appear to be, you know, uh, overwhelming. Um, but you can implement. You know, we've discussed that you can implement some processes and procedures where you uh, have best practices to. Um, Ensure that you're asking the right questions. You're making that technology assessment to uh, understand the workplace technologies and to identify the areas of control. And when you are able to implement these kind of these processes and procedures, you ask these questions of each foreign national, and you're able to document and demonstrate that uh, there is no... Uh, license required, or in the alternative that a license is required. But you've you've taken the the reasonable care to understand and do that technology assessment up front.
0: Okay, okay, so that's your practical suggestion right there. Then you as employers need to obviously consider that. Um, And what about are there any exceptions to the license requirement that the employer could say, wow, that might apply to me?
1: Yes, there are many uh, license exceptions. Um, each of them that are uh, – uh, they, they are listed um, within the regulations, and you will see them as you go through the, um, the CCL and you look at the countries, and then you'll, you'll see whether any license exceptions apply. Some of them um, have some provisions, like the technology and software under restriction, which they call the TSR. Um, depending on the country that uh, the export is going to, uh, the government will often require written assurances before the export is made. In some instances, there's um, if it's op- what's called operation technology. That is technology, um, the minimum levels of technology, which is permitted for the installation, the operation, the maintenance and repair of commodities or software that, that's Exported under a license. With operation technology, it may be sent to the to that destination where the equipment is required, and it has have to and it must, be, of course, be legally exported. Um, and then there are some license exceptions also that uh, may, that are generally only available to private sector end users. That is, no government end users. So, you know, you have to check check it against the list and uh, kind of you know do your do your your homework in terms of um, uh, making sure you, you cross your T's and dot your I's.
0: Makes a lot of sense. We appreciate your input, Adonica. So just to kind of try to summarize uh, rather quickly what we've done in this two-part series, first is the fact that the Form I-129 itself has been revised, but it's not because of any change in the law or regulation or guidance. It is something that for the first time ever that the USCIS has involved itself In export license applications possibly part of this entire you know improving or increasing security and security related issues this law and this regulation this requirement of h1b employers has been in existence for many many decades and all that this form does is it now requires you to actually check it off the scary part is because we signed those forms under penalty of perjury it's a little bit scary the second issue that we absolutely touched upon is that there, the employer is certifying all of these documents under oath and that it does not apply to all non-immigrants but simply to H's, L, H1B1s, ones, L1s, ones, and O1s. And the whole issue of whether it applies to the blanket L, we talked last time that it's not clear. The government has not said anything. USCIS hasn't said anything. So you as an employer, I know many of our large company clients send their hundreds of their employees on the individual Without filing individual L petitions on the blanket L, they could potentially continue to do that. The consulates haven't brought it up. The USCIS hasn't mentioned anything. Um, So every other kind of non-immigrant, whether it's a NAFTA, E1, E3H2B, P1, R1, just doesn't need to worry about it, at least for now. We talked about the countries or citizens of certain countries which are disproportionately affected by the export license requirements, because you have the ter- terrorist countries that are sponsors of terrorism that are subject to a much much higher re- restriction we also in this two part series talked about uh, that a petitioner it doesn't automatically mean that an h1b petitioner or employer cannot hire a foreign national simply because the foreign national will be exposed to the control technology if the person is exposed, you need to show that yes, I've gone through the motions, I've done what I need to do, and I've obtained the required license. Um, and so, and that was a lot of what Adonica brilliantly outlined for us in as simple, non-technical language as she possibly could do, you uh, know, on a very, very complex subject matter. Uh, and we also talked about what happens if the H-1B employer either makes a unintentional or an intentional error in checking off this item's Part Six of the new sort of requirement under the Form I-129. One of the questions that we're often asked is, can the petitioner just leave this to the immigration attorney, Aaron? Do you think that they can just say, hey, go ahead, complete it, I don't care, I don't understand this, it's your problem?
2: See, this is an area that kind of crosses out of immigration, um, and I would say probably it is not something that you could leave just to an immigration attorney who's not familiar with the deemed exports, with the ITER, or with the um or with the rules related to um to the to the controls that are that this is subject to. Um, so
0: so it's best to go to the expert so best it's to contact absolutely someone like best to go or or her to lawful. the expert
2: absolutely to go to somebody just like we are super familiar with all the issues related to H's, to L's, to the O's, to the green card processes and all the various nuances that relate to the immigration processes that we deal with on a day-to-day basis, it's good to look to an expert who has that same type of bank of knowledge when it comes to these types of things to make sure that you know what you're doing and that you're going forward in a way that won't make you subject to those penalties that we mentioned previously.
0: Absolutely. And in fact, the very fact that... We at the Murti Law Firm, uh, with all of us, sort of put our brains together, tried to read the regulations and said, you know what, we are not capable. Yes, we're lawyers. Yes, we like to think we're brilliant lawyers. We're smart. We're creative and all of that. But then when we started looking at the technicalities, we said, you know what, let's go get somebody from outside who is an expert, who focuses almost exclusively in the area of export controls, export regulations And that's how we were able to contact Adonica out there on the West Coast in California to team up with us in order to be able to provide this very, very complex subject matter in a simple, easy-to-understand format. And one of the last issues that we also discussed was if the, employers, uh, the employee's H-1B duties change so that the, the employee could now be exposed to a controlled technology or technical data that wasn't originally subject to it. Do we need an H-1B amendment? Do we not? We kind of ended up in this gray area. And several other matters that we've discussed over the course of two sessions over the last two months. Uh, we want you to know that we value and really want to take fabulous care of you, our valued clients, our valued participants and members who have joined the Murthy Law Firm monthly teleconference series. We continue to want to provide you the latest, most useful, cutting-edge information. And when required, we do bring outside experts, as we've done with Adonica this time. And as we've done, I think, previously once with the Department of Labor, by getting a Department of Labor person on the call to guide and help our employers with the whole Department of Labor issues dealing with perms and green cards and H1s, etc., so we, we are very cognizant of your 30 to 45 minute time frame. We will try to wrap this up, but it's always a pleasure and honor on behalf of myself, Sheila Murthy, attorney Aaron Finkelstein, attorney Adonika Avada, and our entire law firm, and Yun Gong who's been, by the way, working tremendously guiding us and working with us and coordinating all of these materials. We thank you so much for joining us. We are here to guide you on all of the latest information dealing with immigration issues, And when when we believe that there is an intersection between immigration law and other areas of the law where we need outside experts, we ourselves use them for the benefit of our clients, and we hope that you will do so as well. Thank you so much for joining us. Have a fabulous rest of the day and week, and we look forward to continuing to take care of you at the Murthy Law Firm. So long.